Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. All the things, war and peace, hunger and gluttony, tragedy and beauty, how can we get our arms around it all? especially when it's happening all at once. We are at once storm-tossed and in the doldrums and safely on shore, sitting under a palm tree on a white sand beach with a cool drink and a good book. We can't hold it all at once. Best to surrender and accept that it's always all the things. American poet Adrian Rich wrote, no one ever told us we had to study our lives, make of our lives a study as if learning natural history or music, that we should begin with the simple exercises first and slowly go on trying the hard ones, practicing till strength and accuracy become one with the daring to leap into the transcendence, take the chance of breaking down in the wild arpeggio or faulting the full sentence of the fugue. And in fact, we can't live like that. We take on everything at once before we've even begun to read or mark time. We're forced to begin in the midst of the hardest movement the one already sounding as we are born. As I was planning a wedding with a young couple, they asked me to take out the line, until death do us part. We don't want to think about dying on our wedding day. <laughs> as we spoke further, it turned out that the groom's grandfather had died recently and the bride's mother had died when she was young. They were both very sad that these two had not lived to be a part of their ceremony. I suggested we set up a small table with photos and that I mention grandfather and mother and affirm that surely they were with us in spirit. The couple wasn't having it. We don't want to be sad on our wedding day. The day came service began and I watched as the groom's grandmother was seated alone and the bride's father walked her down the aisle and then sat down alone. They were doing their best but both were in tears before I had even begun to speak. And then both bride and groom were also awash in tears, undone not at the miracle of their love or for all the joy of the day, but because they whispered to me, they were missing their mother and their grandfather. 
It occurred to me then that no day is ever without the threat of death parting us. No day is ever without sadness. And it helps. It really does help simply to name that, to name that it's always all the things. Had we acknowledged it at the outset, the unbearable pressure of bottling it up might have been made manageable. The spiritual practice is to surrender, accept, and say so. This is painful, and this is beautiful. To take a deeper dive, this is the essence of the Buddha's first noble truth. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Everyone feels pain. What we do with that pain is up to us. My friend, Jewish Buddhist teacher Sylvia Borstein, loves to joke that the first line of Dr. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, was what sold more than six and a half million copies and made it an international bestseller. The first line, just these words. Life is difficult. I sometimes think people read that first sentence, says Sylvia, and were so excited someone was actually telling the truth of their experience that they bought the book. It was, of course, plagiarism. The Buddha said it first. I have often thought of a very different time, a very difficult time in Sylvia's life and how it set her on the path to spiritual awakening as only difficult times can. She was in her mid-30s, happily married to Seymour, a young mother of four and a successful psychologist. She says, somehow I never thought about how vulnerable it all was. And then one morning, two little girls were on their way to school, sisters, age six and seven, classmates of Sylvia's daughter, Elizabeth, and they were killed by an out-of-control car. Suddenly, Sylvia says, I woke up to the fact that being alive is very dangerous and every moment of life is very precious. Perhaps if I had awakened to that fact in a balanced way, or at least in a more mature way, I would have experienced one of those transformative moments one reads about, after which one is totally changed forever and the rest of their life is lived in abiding clarity. That didn't happen to me. I was, she says, plunged into despair. I couldn't imagine why people continued living if life is terminal at the very best and unpredictable throughout. I realized all relationships end in loss and loss is so painful. I read existential philosophers Camus and Sartre and I wondered how could people live their lives as if everything were all right when I absolutely knew it wasn't. Part of my despair, Sylvia Borstein concludes, was thinking I was the only person who felt that way. What a relief it was to go to my first meditation retreat 
and hear people speak the truth so clearly, the first noble truth, that life is difficult and painful and not because we're doing it wrong. But pain and despair are never the whole of the human story. We know that. Depending on where it catches us, the good news or the bad news is that everything changes. Everything is always in flux. The longing for lasting pleasure or lasting security is absolutely at odds with the fact that we're part of a dynamic system in which everything, everything and everyone is always in process. Fundamentalism is comforting ourselves by getting some neat way of explaining reality in a death grip and refusing to tolerate the discomfort of staying open to other possibilities. With a fixed identity, we have to busy ourselves with trying to rearrange reality because reality doesn't conform to our fundamentalist view. The question then, the spiritual challenge, is how to increase our tolerance for instability and change and live wholeheartedly in spite of impermanence. American Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chudrin speaks of the fundamental anxiety or queasiness of being human. She writes, what if we said, yes, this is the way it is, this is what it means to be human, and just decided to sit down and enjoy the ride? We know we can't get our arms around all the things, but can we make it our mission to make them into vehicles at best? Make them everyone and everything in our path a vehicle to live with a measure of peace and grace? Rumi says, how long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, are never airborne. A normally healthy friend of American Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg got very sick with pneumonia. Independently, two different mutual friends called in rapid succession to tell Sharon he'd almost died. By the time she reached him, she joked, I may now expressly refer to you as he who almost died. And without missing a beat, her friend responded, well, that's better than being known as he who almost lived. We can spend a lifetime almost living rather than being truly alive. Of course, there's an alternative, staying stuck in almost living. Echoing the Buddha, Pema Chodron writes, it's not impermanence per se that's the cause of our suffering. Rather, it's our resistance. Our discomfort arises from all our efforts to realize our dream of constant okayness. When we resist change, it's called suffering. But when we completely let go and not struggle against it, 
When we embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into its dynamic quality, that, my friends, is called enlightenment. Another word for this is freedom. Freedom from struggling against the foundational ambiguity of being human. So let's lean into Rumi's idea of being airborne. For starters, it is said to be a sign of enlightenment when someone can say, well, this isn't what I want, but it's what I got. So, okay. Okay. Can we find that equanimity in ourselves? A friend of a friend described his lovely mother-in-law driving on a Los Angeles freeway, infamously smoggy, congested, and miserable, exclaiming cheerfully, wow, look at all these people going places. Maybe she's a Buddha. This is reframing. It's helpful. Pema Chodron tells the story of standing on the prow of a large ship with her 12-year-old son, think Titanic, he was having the time of his life, but she was compelled to admit to him that her fear of heights was getting the best of her. She describes some of what she was feeling, including that her legs were turning to mush. And her son said, Mom, that's exactly how I feel. Reframing. Same physical sensation. But one is miserable and one is airborne. Canadian singer and songwriter Leonard Cohen sang, Suzanne takes your hand, she leads you to the river. She's wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters and the sun pours down like honey on Our Lady of the Harbor. And she shows you where to look among the garbage and the flowers the garbage, and the flowers. In Tibetan Buddhism, there are three instructions for looking among the garbage and the flowers, for living beautifully in the mess. The instructions are actually directives known as the three commitments taken as vows. The first vow is to do your best, not to cause harm. The work is to attend to our thoughts and emotions and to refrain from acting with clouded vision. Do your best. The second vow is to help others, to keep our minds and hearts and hands open to all beings. Help others. The third vow is to resolve to embrace the world exactly as it is without bias to experience everything we encounter as a means to awakening. Do your best, help others, embrace the world exactly as it is. I've shared a little of the work of brain scientist Jill Bolt Taylor, who documented in excruciating detail exactly what was happening as she suffered a massive stroke and during her long recovery. Her book 
is called My Stroke of Insight. One of many very cool things she shares is that our physiological response to an emotion lasts exactly 90 seconds. It takes one and a half minutes for us to process an emotion from the moment we're triggered until it's fully run its course. If the feeling lasts any longer, it's because we are fueling it with our thoughts, recycling the storyline. What should last for a minute and a half can last 10 years, 30 years, more. One woman ran with this information and came up with what she calls the one and a half minute thing. We know exactly where she's going with this. When we feel thrown, emotionally destabilized, queasy, or overwrought, when we can't get our arms around it all, we can remember and practice the one and a half minute thing. Surrender, drop the storyline, stay present, and let go. Beloved spiritual companions, let's close with this. Profoundly touched and moved by the 13th century Persian poet and Sufi mystic, Coleman Barks brought Rumi to the English-speaking world with this translation of The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in Namaste. I bow to the divine in you. The words of W.E.B. Du Bois, born in 1868, co-founder of the NAACP, the first African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard. It is the wind and the rain, O oh God, the cold and the storm that make this earth to blossom and bear its fruit. So in our lives, it is storm and stress and hurt and suffering that make us bring the world's work to its highest perfection. Let us learn then in these growing years to respect the harder, sterner aspects of life, 
together with its joy and laughter and to weave them all into the great web. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.